of your eye, huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Hey, Midsummer, Somar, whatever. Midsummer. I just say Midsummer. Midsummer. Okay. Is it kind of the Swedish way of writing it? So I'm not really sure. I was really shocked to find out that it's an actual holiday. And it's not just a Swedish holiday. It's like a decent sized holiday all through Eastern Europe, like worldwide. There's a but lot of not midsummer this version of it, I hope. No. The holiday is based on the winter solstice. In fact, whenever people are listening to this, we happen to be recording this the week after midsummer. It kind of worked out. It's celebrated in several countries worldwide, and there's even a handful of locations in the States where they actually celebrate Midsummer. Alaska is a big one because not unlike Sweden, Midsummer is when you will have a day where you have no night, really. You get a dusky twilight at midnight, but that's about it. They talk about that in the movie. Yeah. The holiday is so important to Sweden, it's even been proposed to be made the National Day of Sweden. It started as a a pagan holiday. Christianity came in and like Christian tradition does, they usurped it and made it St. John the Baptist Day, which biblically St. John the Baptist was Jesus's older cousin. And so this would make him on the Christian calendar six months older than Jesus was because Jesus was born in Christmas. Traditionally accurate too. (laughs) Yeah. Traditionally, bonfires are typically lit, keeps evil spirits and witches at bay. And in Sweden, the actual holiday, the celebration takes place on Midsummer Eve, not on Halloween and All Saints Day for us. So that Halloween is such a big deal. Nobody even knows about All Saints Day, but that was like a pairing, Midsummer Eve and Midsummer. So yeah, it's actually a tradition that we just don't celebrate very much around here, but a lot of places really do. Well, I'd be okay celebrating it, just not in the fashion portrayed in the movie. Let's, yes. Let's not do that version. The movie is a U.S. and Swedish film. It was released in 2019. It was written and directed by a man named Ari Aster. This was only his second major motion picture, his first being Heredity, which came out and to great acclaim. And pretty much as soon as Heredity came out, he was greenlit to do this project. They were like, yeah, you're going to do another one for us. A lot of Astor's other work are shorts. And you can actually go on YouTube and watch almost all of them, uh, which is cool. Some of them look like film student work. And then other of them are like, not unlike Midsummer, this kind of ambiguously disturbing thing that you're watching. And I remember this is one of the few ones we've done that I remember being big, like movie posters on the side of the theaters and on TV, watching just regular TV shows, seeing ads and trailers and stuff. I remember it being big. And Heredity was a big, big key to that because Heredity, he did on his own. A24 was behind all of this. Good on them taking this unknown guy. And that's their niche, right? A24 introduces a lot of stuff he came out with heredity and it was such a hit that like everyone's like wow what's his next one gonna be it's not unlike shoot key and peel jordan peel oh, did the, the us yes us but not movie. us the one uh, before get out. yes get, get out. out where it was just his first offering as a director as everyone knew and it was phenomenal yeah now ari aster's a little Less like that because people at least knew Jordan Peele. Yeah, the comedy guy. Let's make a horror that's truly different and really scary thinking about it. Yeah, both of those were really good. I was very impressed with both of them. Oh, yeah. Okay, off this topic for just one second. Get Out was one of those that a bunch of us watched it. and We got done and we sat around and discussed it for an hour. What we saw, what we thought, and various aspects 
it just had so many things. We talk about that pop in your mind and questions and stuff. And it's very rare in today's world that we get a movie that you discuss afterwards to that length and detail, not just reiterating right. it, but questions and opinions and thoughts. And that's a rare movie, I, I must say. So those are good yeah. ones. And this um, one has a few of those also. <laughs> yeah. It, that's what made doing this one so difficult because it's hard to decide how to proceed because there's so much going on in it. You could just spend hours yeah. discussing this movie. And if you've listened to a lot of our podcasts, you shouldn't be overly surprised to find that I'm like a big fan of Ari Oster's work. And you wrote a few notes for this one, I hear. Oh God, 14 pages when I was done. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a, that's like a term paper. We need to um, teach you dictate or dictaphone dictation. So you... <laughs> yes, because when you're having to do the movie and then pause and then type and then go back to the movie, this right. movie is not short. It's two hours and 27 minutes long. That's eight, uh, 10 hours worth of typing on my end from, oh, pause, type, start, oh, pause, type. I think when I was doing it, I was like the first five to 10 minutes. I was on that for an hour. It was insane. Yeah, and I've got a couple comments about that whole aspect of the movie when we get to Yeah. It. He wrote and directed this movie. He was born in New York City and trained at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. And again, he's got a whole bunch of shorts. You can find a lot of them on YouTube. He's only got two full-length movies, Heredity and Midsummer, and there's one in the can called Disappointment Boulevard, which I don't, don't know wait. anything about. And honestly, I think that's the best way to go into his films if you don't know anything about them. If you're going in just completely clean, because Steve and I have discussed this, I saw Heredity first, and it influenced what I was thinking when I came into Midsummer. And the way Midsummer ends, I was like shocked. And so I mentioned that to Steve, and now Steve's seen Midsummer, and he's going to watch Heredity. And so right. I'll be interested to see how the viewing of Midsummer is going to affect the way he watches Heredity. The other way. Yeah. And yeah. I think in general, a lot of horror is best to go into without knowing much because yeah. today's trailers give away so many they things. Do. It doesn't work so well. And I've had that argument with horror novels. There's a lot of people that say, oh, you got to have the action and the conflict right on the first page or it doesn't grasp people. I'm like, but that's antithesis to a good horror novel. You do that and there's no buildup. So right. means it doesn't fit. So. Yeah, avoid trailers. If you want to see, if you like horror, just go see the horror movies. Some yeah. of them will be, dead. some will be good. Watching the duds is half the fun. <laughs> We've watched a few in our time. Yeah. More than a few. Yeah. Now, I will say, when you read reviews for uh, Midsummer, you'll get this a lot where people see Heredity and they're like, that was awesome. And they'll go watch Midsummer and they're like, that sucks because they're two very different films. The art and the craft that he does when he makes these movies is very similar, but the but in tone and everything between these two movies, they're very different. And he claims that when he made Heredity, he didn't intend on making a horror movie, which I have a hard time believing that. But that's what he claims. He said he just set out to make a family drama, and it turned into a horror movie. And he says the same thing about Midsummer was a breakup film, that evolved into a horror movie. He did. And it's not a typical horror movie at all. Oh, it, no. It's a, a very subtle. It's not even really psychological so much as some of the others we've seen. It's, it's hard to define. It I was like, wow, this is really hard to say why it's horror. It's got horrific elements all throughout and it builds up. But yeah, the whole way everything builds up, it's like you're watching two movies at times almost the way it goes back and forth it reminds me a lot of audition oh where yeah. you're watching a movie and it has this feel to it and there's this undercurrent of ominousness that's going on and you're not really sure why and then at the end you find out why yeah. kind of thing yeah exactly he also didn't set out to make midsummer and heredity a set but now that he's looking back on them he does pair them up because Heredity is a very dark movie and the evil slash horror part of it is very supernatural and visceral. It's in your face. Not really in your face because you really can't necessarily see it because everything's so dark. It's there. 
heredity uh, midsummer is crazy bright in fact there are times when like the lens is blue the whites just blow it out because it's so right. bright it's, evil it's swedish like you said during the middle of the time when there's no darkness it's daylight all the time and he brings yep. that out a lot and the evil and horror in midsummer is like personal and subtle it's not I liken it to heredity is like a werewolf beating down your door and midsummer is like you getting a letter from the IRS. They both have a sense of dread, but one much more immediate. That needs to be our t-shirt, you know, midsummer, <laughs> like getting a letter from the IRS. <laughs> yeah. I classify both of those movies as literary horror. When we talk about classifying horror movies, there yeah. where there's so much more subtext to the, in what's actually happening in the background and with the characters, the necessarily action happening on the screen. Yeah. Astor considers both to be what he terms folk horror, which I think is another good term. Like mama, you could almost call a folk horror story. He said in an interview, I would say hereditary absolutely is a horror film unabashedly. And this film is, I'm very careful to call it an adult fairy tale. That's what this is. It's a contem- adult contemporary fairy. And Going by the definition of fairy tale we used on Mama, where it has to have a clear opening and a clear ending, there has to be a supernatural element and a clear evil. The clear evil part is kind of hard to put your finger on in this movie. And really, this would be the discussion. Is it evil? Is there evil in the movie or not? Because really, it could be definitely argued there's not. It's horrific, but not evil. Yeah, it, we'll get to it in a second. Astor wanted this film to be a breakup film. He had just gone through a breakup, something you would go to see if you'd had been in a relationship that recently ended. He didn't consider himself a horror director. He thinks that horror as a genre is rich with potential when it's done well, and it can deliver amazing moving experiences to the audience. But a lot of the movies are cynically written and miss the mark. Well, and that could be our recommendation then. This is a breakup movie, so for date night, go get Dirty Dancing in Midsummer. That'd be a good date night right there. Yeah, it's really funny because whenever I talk to my kids about these movies sometimes when they're interested, and whenever I talk to them, I'm like, yeah, it's a horror movie, but I would highly recommend that my daughters watch this movie because this is a female empowerment film. It doesn't have to be. You could switch the genders of everyone around, but because... Danny is like the main character of this film. It makes it like this movie that kind of lifts women up. That's the the pagan beliefs and rituals. A lot of times are the mother earth and mother goddess and honoring the sacred birth and giving birth and all that. This really touches on that a lot. Uh, And I think maybe that's part of the horrific part is it's these practices we would think of as ancient but brought into the modern world and completely acceptable by these people so that's part of the horrific element there one of the other horrific parts to it for me and is this dissonance that happens and it happened like in audition when she's putting those needles in the guy and she's making that little tiki 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 noise that sound doesn't go with that action Wes Craven's original Last House on the Left, the music that they play while the people are doing horrific things is almost like that kind of airy fairy circus 70s kind of music. And you're like, that doesn't sync up with this at all, which makes it more disturbing. So like at the end of Midsummer, where all of a sudden there's this smiling, beautiful Swedish woman opening your eyes as you're a Christian and she's like, okay, you can't move. And you can't talk now, all right? And she smiles and she steps back. And you're like, that doesn't jibe with what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that dissonance can really pack a punch. Yeah. And we mentioned Peel. He's got that in his movies. That's probably yeah. what makes them so good. It's a, that unexpected what's really going on and that twist in the norm of what you expect or are used to. Yep. yep. This movie hits pretty well with critics, but not always with audiences. Rotten Tomatoes has an 83% approval rating from the critics and only 63% from audiences. It's definitely one, another one I would pick and choose who I recommend it to. Yep. 
It was nominated for 77 awards and won 27. A lot of those going to Florence Pugh for her performance. Song going to Ari Aster, the production team, and even Trippiest Movie of the Year from the Golden Schmoes Award was something that they won. Nice. The budget for this was estimated to be about $9 million. And this is one of those success stories because of all the hype leading up to it. The budget was $9 million and it took in $27.5 million gross in the U.S. and $48 million gross worldwide. Nice. So it did well for the theaters. It's not surprising that he has a third one already right. shot. It, and, and wow, $9 million because it's small set. One set really build the yep. set and we're done yep. for the most part. Yeah. Florence Pugh is in this. She's a British actress. She plays Danny. She's been in 27 films. And for those of you who aren't really sure what you know her from, she's the new Black Widow. Oh, my God. I knew I recognized her. Holy crap. Yep. Yep. She also did Lady Macbeth, King Lear. She was in Malevolent, which is another pretty good horror film. Little Women, Father of the Bride 3, Black Widow, and Hawkeye. And she's got a whole lot of upcoming titles, including Puss in Boots sequel, a new movie about Oppenheimer, and she's in the second part of the new Dune series. So Jack Rayner plays Christian, Danny's boyfriend. He's been in 28 films. He is born in America, but lives in Ireland now. So she's a British actress. He's technically an Irish actor. The movies he's been in, Transformers, Age of Extinction, Macbeth, On the Basis of Sex, Mowgli, and a ton of titles I did not know. He looked at a lot through the movie. He looked a lot like Chris Pratt's brother. I know. That's exactly what I thought while he was in it. (laughs) William Jackson Harper plays Josh. He's been in 44 other titles. Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Just Law and Order. (coughs) Pardon me. Great performances. He did voiceover in Grand Theft Auto 4. He was in 30 Rock. The New Electric Company, when they were doing that in the early 2000s. Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. Most people will know him from as Cheaty from The Good Place. He was in American Dad, The Underground Railroad, and a film called Dogs in Space, which I haven't seen, but the title intrigues me. So, (laughs) as long as he's not playing Leka or Liku or whatever that poor dog was, he is the only actor actually in this film. Huh. Okay. Of the main cast, I should say. I didn't go through the entire list, but. Okay. Will Poulter plays Mark, and he's been in 29 films, including The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He was in the Maze Runner series, if you watched any of those. He was also in The Revenants, Black Mirror Bandersnatch. He was in The Underground Railroad as well with William Jackson Harper. That show Dope Sick on Hulu, and he will be Adam Warlock in the next Guardians of the Galaxy film. Yep, yep. Which will Most be interesting. The, I wouldn't yeah. picture him as that, but we'll see. You can do a lot with gold paint. Most of the rest of the cast, and I'm generalizing here, are Swedish. And they are accomplished, but we don't know anything that they've done. For instance, I refer to them as the honored couple. The ones, the old couple from the middle of the movie. The guy who is in that, the gentleman in there, is actually well-known. He got his start in some super famous Swedish film, and I don't know any of that stuff. But yeah, okay, he's a big name. This film originally had an NC-17 rating. Astor cut 30 minutes out of it to get to an R rating. At three hours and, or two hours and 25 minutes, cutting 30 minutes out was a good Ooh. idea because that yeah. would have made it almost three hours. Yeah, and uh, I even may make a note that 30 minutes in, I'm like, okay, at this point, I know a lot of people would have been done. Like, I'm done with this, nothing, because yeah. some of the shots, the way they're done. Yes. The film was when the film was released in Sweden. Here it's like this psychological drama. In Sweden, it was pretty funny and they considered it a dark comedy. They didn't really consider it a horror movie. So interesting. Yeah. Swedes have weird humor. Maybe it would almost be like Tucker and Dale versus Evil shown if someone was trying to do that seriously and they showed it to us because we live out here in the sticks with the rednecks and stuff. And true, very true. It's all a matter of perspective. Yeah. For a movie that is so big for Sweden, it was actually shot in Hungary. Okay. Budgetary restraints. 
the film was greenlit on May 18th of 2019, and it premiered on June 18th of 2019. Holy crap! Yeah. An amazing schedule. Holy crap! (laughs) Yeah. The script has Danny and her friends living in New York City, and her parents live in Minneapolis, but the U.S. shots were all filmed in Utah. Again, I'm assuming that had to do with budgetary constraints. Probably. They got to stay with family. (laughs) Yeah. This movie is sometimes cited online as a good example of cult indoctrination. And I can see that. And this is where the what's good and what's bad thing comes up. Yeah. So before we dive into the movie shot by shot, which there's not enough time to do that. In a podcast, we'll go an overview. But in general, the concept of the cult that is getting Danny to join, when I first saw the movie, I really didn't have a problem with them. I wasn't seeing it as a cult so much. Now, when you watch it a second time, or a third time, you can see that they're far more duplicitous than they appear the first time through. Yeah. But I was seeing it as, it's a culture clash. Yeah. And while the things they're doing are horrific, there are like cultural reasons why they're doing this, and these people like came here voluntarily. So calling it like evil was a stretch for me. Yeah. On the other hand, The way Christian treats Danny at the first half of this movie, a lot of people are like, that's just relationship. And I'm like, he's literally gaslighting her and completely, basically ignoring her as a person, just keeping her as a girlfriend that he can put on the shelf and say, this is my girlfriend. Because, oh, things didn't work out, so I'll go back to her tonight. Yeah. And again, right there, you brought up two things that could be argument is what the quote-unquote cult does is that evil or is what he's doing to his girlfriend evil again perspective and the it it could be argued are they a cult or are they because they're totally aware what's going on they're accepting of what's going on they embrace and enjoy it and it's not a problem for them so is it our perspective that makes it look evil because to them it's not and they're not going out and just grabbing people off the street two, three, four a month. what they say? Every 70 years or something like that. 90 years. 90 years. And yeah. that, that had the whole pagan ancient mythologies thing, that whole cycle of such a long period of times, like the ancient evils and all yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. That there is probably a whole essay dissertation for some class at college. The number nine is prevalent throughout this whole movie. You could just do numerology on this. The number of sacrifices at the end is nine. They break down the age groups into groups of nine. It's a 90-year cycle. So the number nine plays a big role in this. No Beatles songs used. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it's a good point. Astor is known prominently for two things, which is funny because he's only made two movies. When you look him up, they're like, these are the stylistic traits of Ari Astor. And it's one is taking, making very long shots. And he I likes have a to take his timeless that. shots. Yes. And he will tell you that you film as much as budget will let you. And then when it's time to edit, it's a sorrowful process because you actually have to take these beautiful long shots and cut them down into something smaller so they'll fit in the film. <laughs> so he is all about his raw footage. And I make a comment about that. And that's exactly why a lot of people won't be into this movie because in a typical one of you know what i call it not hollywood movie i've got a name here i dubbed it came up somewhere we'll get to it the big quote-unquote hollywood movies yeah yeah they have angle certain angles and shots and you expect a certain scene to be a certain way it's just we don't even know we expect it but it feels comfortable this camera set up 20 minutes of filming and that's what, what he does and it's not and it's not close up face all the time. It's backed off and things move and happen, but the camera's very stationary for a lot of this. And yeah. there's definitely a 
large group of people that that wouldn't be enjoyable to them partly because it's that could be part of the horrific element just that unease you feel watching this movie that you're not used to and that's not even the story itself and that's something culturally that we've been taught it's there's not a right or wrong way to do this it's just the way we're shown at the very start of the movie danny is calling her parents while they're asleep and there is this very long, slow pan across their bedroom and then across dad asleep and mom asleep. And then you can see the phone and you can see a picture of Danny. The way traditionally you would shoot that is you would have the bedroom and then you would cut to the parents and then you might cut to the phone with the picture and then move on to the next scene. Right. But this very long, slow, organic thing how you would actually work as a person if you walk into a dark room and you're trying to right. survey the scene you're going to start on the left and you're going to look to your right but and not even more so than that she's on the phone quite a bit she calls her boyfriend christian and they're on the phone not typically you get a split screen occasionally usually if it's a comedy or you get back and forth when they're right. talking they ch- but not this it's 10 minutes of conversation sitting on her and you hear both sides but the camera doesn't move that whole time it just and there's a lot of scenes like that again yeah. it this is where this is a weird movie it's not large budget but it's not super small it wasn't a huge productive hollywood movie it's almost an independent film but it was released as such it's just it's a lot of things that don't mesh up with this movie yeah there's that one scene where she's doubting herself on her phone with her best friend apparently we never even see who the best friend was at played by because the whole shot is danny walking around the apartment on the phone and you can hear the friend on the phone but they never show you who she is yeah who knows totally different so yeah i definitely will give them kudos for doing it different and still making a movie that keeps you engaged yeah his second trait that he's known for is not shying away from graphic violence um, really? I, that one I didn't see at all. <laughs> yeah. He's not afraid to get the camera nice and tight and to linger on horrific scenes. Um, Which were all done very well. They, oh, they yeah. didn't look like rubber plastic and crap at all. It's like, They didn't really do what they just looked like. That's just, that's all fake. Just making sure. <laughs> the third thing for me, this isn't anybody talking but me, but the third thing that I note in his movies is he loves to put ridiculous minute details in everything and that's art school training right there a bfa under my belt i can tell you they beat that into your head everything you think about has to tie into the overall theme when you watch his movie especially after you've watched it maybe once or twice there's little tiny hints throughout the entire movie yeah i I, knowing i'm watching this for our review i picked up on a bunch of those the first time just because You start getting what you're watching for. It changes how you watch things. Yeah. And this guy is so ballsy. He takes the entire movie in the first 30 seconds and puts it all out illustrated as a diptych on screen. So you see this folk art diptych. And if you look for it and you pause the film, it tells you pretty much everything up until the last 15 minutes of the movie. It's got the entire thing. It starts with like death and like her parents and her sister and this hose and it's all black and then sunlight, but it's there not for very long. And then the tiptic opens like you're opening the book of a story. It's kind of like the opening of a James Bond movie where they show all the scenes and the little spiraling and everything going on. Yeah. And then it opens to show us these night scenes in the winter. And there's this ethereal acapella female voice singing, and it's beautiful. They're showing these beautiful shots, and it's dreamlike. Yeah. Because that's what it is. It's a dream. And it gets interrupted. And that's one of the elements is what's going on, real or a dream? (laughs) It's not as explicit as somebody get hit hit on the head, but there's enough throughout the movie that you could say, is this really a dream because of the breakup? It goes back to being a breakup movie. Yep. You have that beautiful music, and then all of a sudden there's this harsh-sounding phone and a shot of a house in the dark. 
And that's when we take the camera inside as the phone continues to ring and it pans across her mom and dad asleep. And you hear her on the phone saying, hey, guys, I got some message from Terry. I was just checking and making sure everyone's okay." They mentioned that her their name is Ardor. Ardor is Latin for flame. Oh, it's that kind of thing. It doesn't get mentioned much, but on occasions when you find out Danny's last name is Ardor. And there's this long musicless pan because the singing stopped with the phone ringing. As it goes across the bedroom, there's two people sleeping. There's a photograph of Danny surrounded by summertime flowers. Another hint. That, yep. And she's talking about Terry, her sister, and she's not being able to get a hold of Terry. And as the scene's wrapping up, Danny says she loves them and goodbye. And then we go to Danny's perspective and her back's to the camera in an empty apartment it's a very lonely looking shot of just her all on her and own we stay with danny for quite a while we do she looks at her emails we get to read terry's scary email it says i can't anymore everything's black mom and dad are coming too. goodbye that would be a concerning message a little, for pretty much anybody but unless you really didn't like them <laughs> but we also start finding out little hints that maybe danny's not completely all stable herself, which is a whole nother aspect of the movie. Every time something's going on, you can evaluate it. Is this just Danny's interpretation through her chemically unbalanced mind? Yes. <laughs> Whether it's I, naturally unbalanced chemically or not naturally unbalanced chemically. I actually read a piece where they argued that the entire movie is basically a redemption arc for her because it's her fault they're dead. The dot, the night that she calls, calls and voices her concerns to them, and then she doesn't call anybody. And we can see at the start of the movie, they're actually breathing while they're sleeping. Yeah. So if she would have called for emergency services right away, her sister probably would have been dead, but her parents would still be alive. But she doesn't. Hmm. She second guesses herself. And again, for th- this is out all the kids in college that are like writing papers or evaluating movies and stories sit down for a weekend, watch this one a couple times. You probably pull a whole lot of, cause you're right in that mindset of these, those types of evaluations. Yeah. She calls her boyfriend, Kristen, and she's like on the verge of tears and asking him what's going on. She's like on the verge of tears, obviously upset, but she's trying to make herself sound as normal as she possibly can. She's like, Hey hun, what's going on? And he's like, Oh, we just smoked down and we're going to get a pizza. And she asks if he wants to hang out. And he's like, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll stop by. And then he asks how her sister's situation's going. And she takes this opportunity to say, I'm getting worried. And he's blows the whole thing off. He's like, she does this all the time. And Danny points out, well, she is bipolar. And he's like, that might be, but she always does this. She needs to make it about her. And she calls out and you, it's your fault because you encourage this in her. And in the end, and this is the part that drives me nuts through like at least 60% of this movie. She's like, you're right. And she, <laughs> I'm horrible. Which she's obviously a little unbalanced with her emotions, with her thoughts and all that, which adds to the movie a whole lot. But this goes back again, the evil part, because he takes advantage of her. Absolutely. What he says, knowing her state. And his friends come back here in a minute saying, You've been saying it for a year, you need to break up with her. Dude, you're just hanging on. It's not helping her at all. It's making it worse. Yeah. In fact, at the end of this call, she's like, I'm so lucky to have you. (laughs) It's like, Are you really? Um, He's maybe held on with her the longest. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. She might not have ever had anyone stay with her that long. We cut to her pacing in her kitchen. She's talking to her friend and she's, she's going to scare Christian off and her friends. He's a loser. (laughs) So she, while she's talking to her sensible friend, she goes in the bathroom. She's taking Ativan, which is a medicine for anxiety. One of the few spots in the movie where he focuses on an item like that. That's very common, but a lot of times he doesn't, do that when he right. could have oh yeah there's a lot of pharmaceuticals taken in this movie they never tell you what they are <laughs> while she's talking to her friend her phone her 
call waiting goes off, she's getting a call from unknown. We don't get to find out what the call is because we cut back to the pizza place and Christian's hanging out with his friends at this pizza shop. And his friends are saying, you need to get rid of her. She's too needy. Look at all the women you could be having. And as if to prove the point, the waitress kind of flirts with him when she delivers the bill. Mark is saying that Danny's too much work for his little payoff because she's not really into sex. Josh is saying you need to get rid of her because you're using her as an excuse to not work on your academics. And then Pele points out how many Swedish girls he could be impregnating in June. This is the first reference to the actual midsummer event. So you have these three guys. You have one who like represents sex driven, toxic masculinity in Mark. You have one that represents ambition in Josh. And then you have Pele who represents the cult. Honestly, as you watch this movie, this is if Astor never says, comes right out and says that he was influenced by the wicker man. But he definitely was, because this is the theme of The Wicker Man. Both versions, you have your cult, you send people into the world, they bring people back. Yeah. And those are the people who get put in the big thing and caught on fire. And so, the one, so besides the guys being kind of like the muses that are influencing Christian, the one guy says, and she's not into sex. So this was a question for me right away, because I did know a little bit about what the movie was about. I knew some people that had seen it. I saw the previews. Uh, there's a little hint, but I'm like, oh, is she a virgin? <laughs> because we're talking about this pagan right cult and they're hinting that she could be a virgin. There's, you know, obviously yeah. that's throughout cults, histories and pagan re- beliefs and everything else. That question never gets answered either. No, there's a lot of questions that don't get answered. You mentioned yeah. the pharmaceuticals and they do a lot of them. So besides her mental state, her perspective a lot of times is this real. It's, okay, are we on shrooms right now in this part of the movie or are we not? We It could be any because they're drinking a whole lot of things that they won't answer what's in it and it'll just make yep. you feel better. It's <laughs> so, for your stamina. Yeah. Is the camera lens the third-party outsider that's viewing what's going on or is it reflecting what the person in that scene is experiencing at that moment? It's a big question for any scene. It is, but he actually answers that. Okay. At one point in the film, the audience is actually a willing participant in the activities that are going on. And I'll point it out when we get to it. Okay, good, but, good. Because it's super slight. He get, Christian's phone rings. It's Danny. Mark goes on this rant about how she's abusing Christian. He goes to answer it, and it's just wailing on the other end of the line. And we get to find out why, because we cut to the Arter's house. And it's a very slow progression, and it's a way to describe what was happening, because it starts with firemen in the garage turning the cars off. And then we get a pan over, and there's a hose duct taped to this tailpipe. Then the camera switches to inside as the firefighters walk in, and we see the hose runs on the floor. Then there's an overhead shot of them going up the stairs as they're still following this pipe. And then there's the parents' room where they open the doors, which have been duct taped closed. And the parents are lying in the same position they were at the start, but they're not sleeping anymore. Body bags being zipped. And then as they're carrying the bodies out, they pan over and we see Terry. And she's slumped on the floor of her room. And they slowly pan in to reveal that she has that hose from the exhaust duct taped directly to her mouth. And her laptop is open, which reveals she's got a whole bunch of unread messages from Danny. Here's the supernatural angle to the whole thing. Throughout the movie, there are several times where Terry shows up with a hose in her mouth duct taped to her face. And at least one of them, Danny sees that. Danny did not know that detail. So this could be. Right. But this could be like. It's not something she ever saw. So this could be the ghost of her sister haunting her in a way. Trying to protect her? Trying to Maybe. take her down? It doesn't. Right. The film cuts to Christian walking down a snowy street. And, then there's and, just... One comment on the wailing. That's yeah. one of those great examples of there could have been a whole long dialogue conversation about her feelings and stuff. But instead it was encapsulated with her doing 10 minutes of just wailing. And that's yeah. like it. And that's one of those great choices that you don't see a lot of. Especially when directors like to over-explain stuff. 
Yeah. And he does a whole lot with just primal crying in this movie. Yeah. You see him walking, Christian walking down the road. Then you see him sitting on a couch and Danny is just laying in his lap wailing. And it's one of the only scenes in the entire movie where I feel bad for Christian because he doesn't know what to do. You know what I mean? Regardless of how much of a douchebag he's there, he is, he's there. She's crying. He has no idea how to fix it. Yeah. Oh, I did get the sense from him that he was like, oh my God, just let this over. This is not the first time. And this, like his friend said, this happens. And he's kind of like, okay, I'm here, but dear God. And all he needed to really do is like glance at his watch. (laughs) Roll his eyes. Then he does this really cool thing to show the passage of time where he pans in to the window behind Christian and it's dark and it's snowy. And then they do the credits and then it switches to a summertime shot of the city and the camera pans back through the window. So it's six months have passed or so. And that the credits were cool too. Small in the center of the screen faded out. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. We get this picture of Danny asleep in her bed, but she's not asleep. She's just laying down there looking at the wall. Over her head is a painting. The painting is actually called Stakars Ilibasa, which is translated to Poor Little Bear. It's painted by a Swedish folktale illustrator named John Bauer. And uh, it looked familiar book. to me. It's for a book by Helena Nyblom called Among Gnomes and Trolls, or in Swedish, Golden's Vandring. It depicts this little girl with a crown kissing a seated bear on the nose, which is a little prescient of the end of the movie. Yes. Yeah. And that that looked familiar to me, though. Very well could have run across it somewhere. Yeah. Christian sticks his head in. He's like, hey, babe. He doesn't even come into the room. She's obviously depressed. He says he's heading to a party for 45 minutes, and then she says she'll come along. And again, like Steve said, you could almost hear his eyes rolling in his head. He didn't want her to come along. But okay, she's going to. He also does this thing where sounds are muted. So you're focused on the character. So Danny's at this party. She doesn't really want to be. She's heavily depressed. The music is muffled as is conversation. And she's just staring in the distance. But sound starts to pick up as you hear Pella explaining that he and the boys are going back to Sweden to celebrate midsummer in a rural commune he comes from. And Mark's doing, Mark is going for research. No, Josh is going for research, and it becomes quickly evident that Christian hasn't mentioned any of this to Danny. He Then when she like looks at him, he's like, oh, I wasn't really going to go. We're just talking about it. So the ride home is quiet, awkward, distant. They get back to this apartment, and there's this cool little shot where Danny's by the door, and Christian is reflected in a mirror next to the door. So he's like in a completely other world as they're talking about this. They're arguing about this. Yeah. And she's like, it just would have been nice to know. And he basically turns things around so that in the end of their conversation, he gets her to apologize to him and say <laughs> that she was wrong. And it's, oh, that's just maddening. For me, at least. The boys are discussing the trip. And again, Christian shows how spineless he is because he convinces his friends, Danny's going to come, act like you want her to go because she won't accept the invitation. And then much to all of their dismay, she says she's going to go. Yeah. And Mark's Christian, can I talk to you in this (laughs) other room here? What you thinking about? (laughs) Yeah. So they walk into the other room. Danny heads over to talk to Pelle, who seems genuinely happy that she's coming. He's a little bit of an artist. He's been sketching in his book. It's a still life of a table in front of him. And they talk about school. He's really interested in how her school went, which after he asks the question, he realizes, oh, that's right. Your entire family died in the semester. So I don't imagine it actually went that well for you. They find out they'll arrive in his hometown on her birthday. Yes. And they're headed back for a nine day ceremony for midsummer with pageantry and dressing up. And they're having this lovely conversation. And he pulls out his phone and shows her pictures from the previous year. We find out the people who live there are taught the runic alphabet, and there's a May Queen crowned each year, and he tells her how happy he is that she's coming and how sorry he was to hear about her loss. And he was orphaned, it turns out. Yes. And that right there, I almost heard the dump, dump, dump when he said, oh, I'm so glad and happy you came. And I almost got the feeling that he was hoping she would, which was very ominous. 
or was there something where he was manipulating things? Like you said, that one phone call, we don't know who it was from or whatever. They very much, it was overly ominous without looking ominous whatsoever. It was just, it's a horror movie. It seemed like an innocent conversation. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And so the one part I got confused on was he was showing pictures from the previous year of the Midsummer. So I was thinking about that. I'm like, they can't say it's every 90 years, but then they're doing this every year. So I took it as every 90 years was like this year where they have sacrifices yep. and all that. But in between, it's just a normal, fun little festival in between. Yeah. That's what yeah. I took that. And honestly, if you or I went on one of the off years, it probably would have been lovely enjoyable fun humorous and wearing nice silly clothes and dancing and we get a little high or drunk and off we go yeah just check your calendar before you go <laughs> yeah count the years yeah it's like Haley's comment <laughs> yeah exactly the branch davidians when he mentions that she starts to have a panic attack and her depiction of a panic attack through this movie is amazing she's just yeah. dead on she gets up to go to the bathroom because she doesn't want to have a panic attack in front of everybody. And they, he does this awesome thing where it's an overhead shot. She walks through the door and she closes the door and she's in the bathroom in the airplane. Again, yeah. time has passed. Yeah. A she great gets her, way to do it. Yeah. She gets herself under control. She walks back out, takes her seat and the camera pans out the window and sunshine floods. It, it blinds the camera again. And as the camera settles, as they change the aperture, you can see that there's fjords, and the music comes in. Music is used very sparingly, but a lot of times when it comes in, it like sets the mood because the music's kind of ominous and suspenseful as we see the fjords below as they're flying by. They're now in a car. Mark is being a misogynist, talking about how hot all the women are. And then Josh, being the academic, is like, the women were so hot because the Vikings would kidnap the best women from businesses and bring them back. It's a four-hour drive out of the city to Pelle's home. Um, there's this really cool camera shot where they're taking an overhead shot of the car as it's driving, and then it, the camera flips everything upside down. So you're not in Kansas anymore. You have entered yes. into a completely different realm. That was a great visual way of doing it. In, in the book, The Hero's Journey, The Call to Adventure, you're entering the magical world, leaving your normal world. And that was like, yep. That's right there. If you can't yep. name any other scene, it's boom. There's a banner that crosses the road, and it basically says, Welcome to Helensgard, which is like a, a state, a Swedish state. And then underneath it, just to keep it authentic, in Swedish, it says, Stop mass migration to Helensgard. Vote for a free north this fall. Apparently, you have xenophobic people in most rural areas, <laughs> no matter what part of the world you're in. The camera writes itself, and we find ourselves in a field populated with small clusters of people amongst large groups of flowers. Pelly gets out of his car, and people instantly yell greetings to him. And he explains that they're younger people from his village. They've returned from trips abroad. They're walking through this field. Mark displays this phobia of bugs, and it's a running theme with him constantly. Now, it's very subtle. On occasions, he'll be like, are there ticks or something like that? And there'll be a conversation about him. Right. But even when he's not saying stuff, his character, he's constantly like looking over his shoulder and like brushing himself off. Astor put that in there because he's terrified of bugs. <laughs> so Mark was standing in for Astor in that case. And then Pele's brother Ingmar calls to him and introduces his friends to him. And Astor makes the conscious decision to not subtitle a lot of times when people are speaking in Swedish. So you are just as alienated as everybody else in the group. Yeah. And I caught that. I'm like, wow, that because you like, oh, man, I really would love to know. It makes it more ominous when I'm sure it wasn't. The conversation was. Yeah. Could just been, hey, how was your. Right. When Ingmar introduces these friends of his. Oh, these are friends of mine that I brought. And these are friends. I'm like, oh, that's not good. If everybody went out and brought friends back, that's not good. (laughs) Yeah. Ingmar pulls out some hallucinogenic mushrooms. Danny's not really into doing it right now. And then Christian's like, oh, okay, then I'll wait for you. And then Mark's like, come on. So they all decide to go ahead and do these magic mushrooms. And they're sitting. (laughs) They trip pretty hard. (laughs) Yeah. They're sitting at the base of this tree. And they're trying to contemplate what time it is. Because the sun's up and it's nine o'clock. And Mark's like, I don't like it. I don't like it. 
I'm going to lay down. I'm laying down. It's really nice. Guys, everyone, lay down. Danny stares down and she's looking at her hand and she has blades of grass growing in the backs of her hand. She's already beginning to take root in this area. Yeah. And this begins like this hallucin. Aster's great with hallucinogenic trips. Things start to pop up throughout the film so much that by the end, things are pulsing and flowing. You don't even register it by then because it's happened so much throughout the movie. Mark mentions how they're all his family and Danny almost seems to wake up at that word family. She gets upset and starts to wander off. No one chases after her. You know what? You're just tripping on some hallucinogen. You're going to walk around, knock yourself out in a foreign country. She's having a full-blown panic attack, convinced people are com- laughing at her, and she complains to Ingmar, and he's like, no, they've been laughing this whole time, and he wants to introduce her to her friends, and she sees this small shed in the distance. A bathroom, I would guess? Maybe? Yeah. I, if you look maybe. at the horizontal line on the roof, you can see it waving. Yeah. Because she's hallucinating. She goes in and strikes a match because it's dark, and there's a mirror in front of her. There's a couple photographs on either side. Neither one of them really seem consequential. But when she strikes the match, you can see there's a person behind her. When you slow the film down, you can see it's not a person, it's Terry. It's her sister Terry with a hose in her mouth and duct tape all around it. Oh, I didn't catch that. Nice. Yeah. Just, you see somebody, but if you actually pause it, it's Terry with the hose. Nice. Danny's freaked out. She goes running the glaring sunlight, heads for the woods, and the screen goes black. And we see her parents and Terry sitting on a couch watching TV, but her parents look suspiciously dead already. And Terry turns and looks directly into the camera and the screen goes black. So Danny's lying on the ground in the sunlight and Christian's waking her. There's more discussion on the time. Is it tomorrow? From yesterday's perspective. And Danny asks where they're going. Instead of a location, Pele says what we came for. Where are we going? What are we doing? What we came for. And then there's another great overhead shot of the group walking down this wooded trail as music kicks in again, but it's not ominous. It's amorphic and flowy. You'd be hard pressed to pick out a melody you could hum afterwards. I made the comment throughout the movie, not just here, but even later on, a lot of this movie is kind of like a silent ballet because who would go see a silent ballet with just the people with no music or anything? This movie doesn't have a lot of dialogue. You'll go through whole sections where it's music and picture, but no dialogue, no action per se. It, it, it just struck me for some reason that if this was something else, it'd be a silent ballet. It's just different. Yeah. yeah. They're, the scales, the song that they're playing, is just a series of scales that just keep going up and then start over and going up. So it's like a perpetual climb almost. Um, and you can see overhead they're on this, I don't want to say paved, but it's like a worn trail. Then they cut to the right and take the path less taken. And they find themselves coming out of the woods into a clearing. Mark continues to worry about ticks and his friends aren't helping because they're talking about all these horrible people who got Lyme disease and how horrible it was. And remember Um, that though. Yeah. The wooded trail they're on is lined with these beautiful yellow flowers. And they're very careful to pick their steps. So they're not actually stepping on the flowers, which I thought was interesting. And they come to the clearing, they go through this massive sun-shaped archway, only to be greeted by a welcoming committee dressed in all matching plain white robes. There are white-robed people in the distance picking plants, others hugging new arrivals, and the music you've been hearing this entire hike is played by a small group of pipers off to one side. The view actually takes Danny's breath away. She stops, she like inhales, and she smiles for another second which is probably the first genuine smile she has in the entire movie when she first walks into this town. Mark being the charmer that he is asks if were they stopping off at Waco before they go to Pele's village (laughs) because he is nothing if not tactful. A couple of youths come up and hand everybody strawberries and they eat them. Don't even ask. They just take them and they're like eating these strawberries. They take their bags away and Pele comes back with a girl he claims to be his sister which we find out that he calls everyone here his brothers and sisters. Ingmar's not really his brother. This girl's not really a sister. He then but sees in a small commune like that. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And they even make a comment later about the kid and everybody raises them. So yes. 
it is one big family is what they portray. Yeah. He sees Brother Ott, and he introduces Brother Ott to them, and he shakes everyone's hand, saying hi to everybody except for Danny. He hugs Danny and says, welcome home to her. Yes. So she's already set apart from everybody else there. She compliments his frock, which he says they wear out of respect for Emir. It was like the progenitor god of the Norse people. So he is the one who fashioned the earth. Odin and all the others sprang from various body parts of his. I was going to say, so, yeah, yeah. Not unlike Gaia and Kronos and stuff for the Greeks. Josh goes on this brief sociological blurb about how that tradition of wearing the frock is seen throughout the world. The music changes and everyone congregates toward the maypole, which is this prominent thing in the middle. And that's so weird when they move. That's the first big cult thing I saw. Because everyone's moving together? Yeah, and gong, and they all stop and turn and move. Yeah. There's a lot of that with the community in this, where they will, they look straight ahead, they keep their hands down, and they do. They they walk very plainly, very uniformly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's a female elder there. We find out it's later on, but she addresses the crowd in Swedish. Josh asks if he can take photos, and Pele says yes, but do it discreetly. And after Siv starts her thing in Swedish, she apologizes and addresses the crowd in English, welcoming them to the nine-day feast. Says it's been 90 years since the last great feast, and it'll be 90 years before the next one. Everyone's given a glass, and everyone toasts this and drinks. Again, no one asking what's in it. They're just doing it. And the thing with the pictures, it almost was so subtly not pointed out that it stuck out to me. And I thought it was weird because, wow, most of these things, they, they're like, oh, no pictures. I'm, I was surprised they had outsiders. And then later, when they went to do the research, they let them have access to almost everything. It's like, huh, why would they do that? Because they're not worried about it, is what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of tension and... Like the whole thing with the book being gone and all this and all made up. It's all just done to, like you said, build tension or division between them. There is a cut here after everyone toasts the 90 days till the next one. There's a cut here that seems really out of place at the time. And you see some fingers mixing paint on a paper palette. And you're like, what in the heck? And the camera pulls back and it reveals this white-haired, deformed face looking intently at what it's painting. Then there's a drum noise in the distance and the face looks up and we cut back to the festivities. And so it's almost like here's this beautiful place. Here are all of these beautiful people all hanging out, doing all of this stuff way out in the open. However, there's this kind of ugly underside to it that's hidden away that we don't know about yet kind of thing or is the whole thing the ugly undercurrent but we don't see it yet too yeah that's a great that's a great question we're at an hour and 10 minutes do you want to do a two-parter i'm wondering because we aren't we're not to the halfway point of the movie yet yeah, I was thinking that same thing. Yeah, we could do a part A, part B, and that makes sense because nobody's want to go listen to us ramble for that long. But it's worth it; needs it. So, well, yeah. when you would, when you mentioned that yesterday, I was like, I don't know that it'd be enough for a second part. But seeing where we're at now, well, yeah, be, I think you could easily do it. Talk about, yeah, yeah, you could yeah. easily and do another if, hour, even if the yeah, even if it's forty five minutes, still it'll be worth it. So we could do that. So yeah, part A, part one, whatever. Awesome. We'll keep everybody on their toes. Yes, after we show that there's some sort of undercurrent of ugliness that exists here hidden away, we'll what get will happen back. next? Exactly. Dun, same, dun, next week, same dun. time, same bed show. Yeah. All right, yeah, we can do that. You have been listening to Horror Lasagna. To see all of our seasons and listen to all of the movie reviews with all the themes for each season, check out horrorlasagna.com. 
And if you like the podcast, like the movies and reviews, please give us a like, share with a friend, subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, pass it along, let people know, tell us, hey, I liked it. That was a good movie. Thank you. We would appreciate it. slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.